Rare Petro content subscribers, welcome back to this week's periodical podcast where we are going to discuss the content in this week's periodical titled, Did the Federal Bailout Simply Delay the Inevitable for Oil and Gas Companies? We just released it this past Wednesday, July 15th. I'm hoping many of you heard us last week, but for those of you who don't know who I am, my name's Kevin, and I'm joined by your host of our Monday Madness podcast, Tavis. Hey there. And we are super excited to bring you another podcast to our valued subscribers. Speaking of which, make sure you head over to our website at rarepetro.com and LinkedIn page and subscribe so you can stay up to date on all the things happening in oil and gas. Let's jump into it. Long before the fabled price war and subsequent global pandemic, the domestic oil and gas industry as a whole was struggling. Hundreds of billions of dollars in debt was forcing hundreds of U.S.-based oil and gas companies down the path towards bankruptcy in the five years before oil prices went negative for the first time in history. When the United States government intervened in an attempt to save the industry, many argued that it was too little, too late. But the fact of the matter is, the industry as a whole was struggling and on the brink of disaster long before prices annihilated many companies' bottom line. Frankly, the money injected into the oil and gas market is simply delaying the inevitable because most companies were not making money, even when times were good and prices were high. Now, when global stock markets began to crash in late February after reaching record highs, it sent financial markets into a tailspin. In early March, global markets became extremely volatile with large swings occurring worldwide daily. During this time, the United States Congress authorized the Federal Reserve to inject $2.3 trillion into these struggling markets. When such actions were taken, it included the capacity to lend directly to individual sectors and companies in the real economy, along with indirect purchasing of bonds to specific sectors. In other words, the Fed was authorized to buy billions of dollars in corporate bonds in the energy industry in addition to direct lending to companies themselves. Many climate activists, environmentalists, and individuals or groups opposed to the oil and gas industry were outraged by the move. Even others argued that the money should have been used to support workers facing prolonged unemployment and other economic hardships. While many times anti-oil claims are stubborn and based on pure stigma against the industry, they may have a point here. The federal government might just be propping up an industry that was struggling long before the market downturn. This is made evident by investigating market trends in the five years leading up to the 2020 stock market crash and simultaneous price war. But let's rewind just a few years. Back to July 30th, 2014, that was the last time that oil was above $100 per barrel. From there, prices fell until they settled in the $50 range from January through July of 2015. The drop from $100 to $50 oil forced many companies to reevaluate spending habits and focus on maximizing the lifespan of their wells instead of drilling and completing as many wells as they could to pull as much oil out of the ground as possible. It forced them to adapt and make smarter decisions. When oil fell below the next threshold, $40 per barrel through December 2015, more had to be done than simply tightening the belt. Lifting costs had to be driven to new lows to ensure profitability at low oil prices, especially when prices entered the low $30 range. This was when panic began to set in as companies were poised to be profitable at $40 to $50 oil, but no lower. It was also when the first wave of bankruptcies began to roll in. Although the price of WTI returned to the $40 range in April of 2016 and slowly climbed for nearly three years, so did the bankruptcies. Yeah, April of 2016. I mean, 
that was right before I graduated high school and then got into college to go to mines when oil is like, oh, it's going back up to the 40s. It's on a good path. Yeah, July 30th, 2014, you know, when oil was $100 per barrel, that's right around when I decided to become a petroleum engineer. <laughs> so none of us have really seen these, you know, extreme high price environments. But, you know, as our professors have told us, of people in the industry have told us that we've discussed, you know, in our, our various podcasts, Industry Leader Spotlight, Monday Madness, you know, there really are benefits to low prices, or there can be benefits to low prices, um, you know, Job losses obviously aren't a benefit, but, you know, unnecessary spending, smarter decisions, things like this, you know, there really are benefits. Yeah, it forces businesses to run lean. And like you said, with the people that we've interviewed on other parts of the podcast, they say, you know, in the moment it's pretty bad, but then they go, oh, back in my, oh, what was it, my fifth downturn? So <laughs> we'll get through this. Speaking of history... Since the shale revolution in 2008, there has been limited technological advancements in the oil and gas industry. High prices did not warrant the need for technological progress to drive efficiency. The focus was drilling and completing wells at breakneck pace to bring as much oil and cash flow to the table as quickly as possible. The sharp drop to low prices created a need to adapt for survival. Unfortunately, some were unable to adapt, as seen in the large jump in bankruptcies during the second quarter of 2016, as an overwhelming 200 North American oil and gas companies declared bankruptcy since 2015. Now, granted, that's 2015 through 2020. A major problem in this trend was oil prices steadily climbed from the first quarter of 2016 through the fourth quarter of 2018. But the bankruptcies kept rolling in. In fact, there has not been a single quarter since 2015 that hasn't seen additional bankruptcies since the previous quarter. Even after a minor drop from Q1 2018 into Q1 2019, commodity prices were still above 2015 levels, a price region domestic operators had plenty of time to adjust to. You know, as we were discussing earlier, Tavis, uh, another benefit to low oil prices, it, you know, drives technological advances, it drives efficiency, you know, obviously you don't want to see low prices, but you know, the shale revolution would never have come about if we didn't have those low prices. Exactly. It provides an obstacle that you would not like to see, but that's not to say that in that period there was nobody making money. There was just those innovations that they developed that led the shale industry to be what they described as the shale boom. Unfortunately, it looks like we're now at the tail end of that. So, what was the issue? The short answer, corporate debt. United States E&P companies were simply taking on more and more debt to stay afloat. They became over-leveraged and lost focus of their bottom line. There was a huge spike in aggregate debt during the second quarter of 2016, which paired with a huge spike in bankruptcies. But both secured and unsecured debt for U.S. oil companies has been growing exponentially since 2018. The level of unsecured debt, or debt that has no collateral backing, meaning lenders issue funds with an unsecured loan based solely on the borrower's creditworthiness and promise to repay, were much higher than its secure counterpart. Since domestic EMP companies did not need to put up any assets as collateral on their loans, there was low incentive to quickly pay them back. As a result, companies were using cash flow towards paying off their interest payments instead of paying off the principal balance. The result was companies getting stuck in a hamster wheel since the interest never went away. As cash flow began to restrict with lower prices, the debt began to pile up, bringing with it crashing credit ratings. Of the 158 sub-industries defined by the Global Industry Classification Standards, 
oil and gas drilling saw the worst decline in credit ratings over the last five years, plunging 44% according to their report. The bottom line is, in the 15 years since the first U.S. shale boom, the industry as a whole has failed to return a profit. The result has forced current average credit ratings for E&P companies equivalent to an S&P B rating, putting the sector in non-investment or junk grade territory. With such poor credit ratings, why would the federal government invest in these companies when other industries in other sectors performed much better? Healthcare companies saw an average decline in credit quality by only 6%, while communications improved by 4% and real estate by 3%, all in a time when oil and gas fell 44%. These historic trends tend to strengthen the opposition to actions taken by the U.S. government, but that's just one factor. So... I mean, credit falling, 44%, that seems to be pretty significant. So five years, 10 years, hell, even next year, what are going to be the difficulties of these companies looking to borrow some money? You know, honestly, Tavis, it, it looks like unless you have a solid relationship with a bank or institution that's going to lend to you, chances are you're not going to get anyone else interested. If you are in, you know, non-investment or junk grade territory, no one's going to take their money and, and take the risk on you when, say, you could go for a AAA-rated real estate bond, something like that. So it's like trying to get into the club, but instead of, who do you know here, the bouncer asks, what's your credit score? <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the actions taken in the past few months by the U.S. government. Regardless of a troubled past, the government stepped in to help save the struggling industry. The Federal Reserve made an initial purchase of $1.3 billion in corporate bonds at the end of May, and roughly 8% of that went to oil and gas. While the sector only represents 3% of the S&P 1500, it was hit a bit harder during the economic recession than many other industries due to the dual black swan events of the coronavirus and price war. But of the $100 million that went to oil and gas, a fifth of that went to companies with credit ratings in junk territory. The intentions were genuine and the thoughts were clear. The government stepped in to save an industry that fuels this country. Unfortunately, the timing and execution of these actions was not perfectly carried out. Additionally, the federal government opened new lands for leasing opportunities, eased some environmental restrictions, and the Bureau of Land Management cut companies' royalty rates on federal lands. All such actions promoted the well-being and longevity of the industry, but was met with harsh criticism. On the one hand, opening new lands for oil and gas opportunities allows for companies to expand and explore new areas, but on the other hand, many of these lands were closed for a reason. In addition, the easement of some environmental restrictions makes operating many leases significantly cheaper, which greatly assists in a low-price environment, like the one we are currently experiencing, but also allows for the potential of an environmental mistake to be much higher. Again, while these actions had good intentions to save such a fundamental industry that supports the domestic economy, the execution could have been improved. While it is perfectly reasonable for the government to step in and help an industry struggling during the current downturn, some of the actions taken were questionable. Because the energy sector had been on a declining trend and struggling for years, it is much harder to justify intervention based on the logic that this is a temporary setback related to the coronavirus, as is the case for other sectors. Other actions taken to open new lands for leasing were more in line with assistance that could propel the industry to new heights. The possibilities of developing a new area unexplored before opens up the door to new opportunities, new jobs, and even technological advancements. But unfortunately, some of the actions taken may end up hurting more than helping in the long run. For instance, the Bureau of Land Management cutting royalty rates in a state like Utah 
will nearly dry up much-needed revenue streams for local governments. While the move is assisting one industry, the move indirectly harms several others. Opposition to actions taken to save the oil and gas industry have been growing in the past few months, with many citing, the extraordinary intervention represents support for parts of the economy, which may have been in a secular decline prior to the pandemic. If this is the case, it raises questions surrounding moral hazard and distortion of free markets, as well as the taking on of excessive risk by the Federal Reserve on behalf of U.S. taxpayers. The issue is, these individuals are not looking at the bigger picture. America's oil and natural gas industry supports 10.3 million jobs in the United States and nearly 8% of our nation's GDP. Not only is it an industry responsible for tens of millions of jobs and a huge portion of GDP, it was an industry predicted to be one of the hardest hit by the global pandemic by the Brookings Institution. These predictions were published in mid-March, just one month before the unemployment rate in the United States rose to a record 14.4%, the same time when oil field service jobs fell a similar 13.5% year over year. Luckily for many parts of the economy, things are starting to pick back up, but with elongated, depressed prices in the oil and gas industry, little gains have been made to recover these job losses. All right, Tavis, one of the arguments that I want to discuss with you is people's frustration about the initial purchase of $1.3 billion in corporate bonds, where 8% of that went to oil and gas. Oh, what's your problem with that? Well, people are arguing that since the sector only represents 3% of the S&P 1500, that only 3% should have gone to oil and gas. But do you remember when we were talking about the portion that went to our GDP? If I remember correctly, it was a little bit more than 3%, right? It's 8%, which to me is a perfectly reasonable number. 8% goes to oil and gas. GDP is made up of 8%. To me, those numbers are perfectly in line with the amount that should have got put to oil and gas in regards to it makes up a portion of our GDP. Of course, it's not like they're putting in more than they expect to get out, so you can't be too upset with those numbers. It seems like most of these decisions are financially reasonable, but I got a question. Like you mentioned, of that $100 million that went to oil and gas, a fifth of it went to those companies with their credit ratings that were just trashed. Why did 20%, $20 million go to those companies? Honestly, Tavis, that's one of those decisions that I have to agree with people that are opposing these actions taken by the government. I really don't have a reason for spending $20 million on a company with a junk credit rating other than the fact that, you know, it's instrumental to the industry as a whole. I'm really not sure. On this I, don't, I mean, I, they were well-intentioned for sure, but a little bit of review probably would have proven that that investment could have been better placed somewhere else. Absolutely. Something else I want to ask you about. It looks like a lot of these PPP loans are starting to dry up. And from some of the data we've seen, they supported about 50% of the jobs in Texas. Now, should the government hand out more money to the people who've run out of these loans, or should we maybe redirect it into other industries such as, say, hospitality or really anything else? You know, Tavis, I still think that these PPP loans should still go to oil and gas companies. I mean, they're people just like you and I. They, they need job. They need work. They're supporting the economy. Um, maybe investing in these companies isn't the best move, but I definitely think providing them loans to keep employees on the payroll is still the right move. I have to agree as well. I mean, investing, overarching, I mean, I don't know how much help that will do, but paying the workforce, the labor that actually supports these companies, that's something I can always get yeah. behind. Let's invest in the people, maybe not necessarily the company. 
The oil and gas industry is essential to fuel the economy and push society to new heights. Our modern society was built from oil and gas, and without assistance, a key pillar supporting the United States economy would have failed. While the execution was not perfect, it's understandable. Humans are not perfect, and the choices we make are not perfect as well. What is important is that these actions were taken to ensure the survival of an industry that fuels humanity's progress. The next step is for domestic oil and gas companies to reevaluate their business model to ensure success of their organization well into the future without the need for help when times get tough. This is an industry built on resilience, and in order to reach new heights, companies must be prepared to advance when prices are high, but more importantly, be successful when prices are low. But I think that wraps it up for this week. So thanks for tuning in. I hope you learned a lot or at least thought about a few things that maybe hadn't crossed your mind before. Anyways, we'll be releasing a piece similar to this one each and every week. So please leave us comments and how we can improve this podcast. If you want to hear more commentary, a little bit more about the periodical, just let us know. And I know I'm beginning to sound like a broken record, but please be sure to check out our website, rarepetro.com. That's where you can contact Kevin and myself. And you can also stay up to date with all of our content that we've been releasing to try and keep you up to date on everything oil and gas. So I'll see you all next week. Bon voyage.